0: Good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. My name is Marcus Grodi, your host for this weekly program in which we uh, invite a guest to join us for the program to talk about a, some favorite scriptures. Um, and of course our goal are to choose scriptures that um, were key and instrumental in awakening the guest to a deeper walk with Jesus Christ and his church. And so thank you for joining us. Um, I want to remind you of a few things before we jump into our, our program. Uh, this radio program is connected with the website deepinscripture.com, where if you go to that, you'll find out a lot of information about the program, all the archived programs, as well as a, a means to watch this live on the internet. And if you'd like to give us a call, a question for our guest, the phone number is 800-664-5110 or the regular coming home network. International phone number seven four zero four five zero one one seven five. 740-450-1175. You can send me an email at marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at deepinscripture.com. Our guest for today's program is uh, a guest that I had on the Journey Home program a while back, Andy McNutt. Andy is a former Baptist, Southern Baptist pastor, who after 10 years search for the historical church founded by Christ was received into the Catholic Church back in 2002. He's now a Catholic lay evangelist, speaker, uh, new media consultant. He's also the founder of Polycarp Ministries. And if you, on the Deep in Scripture website, there's a link directly to Polycarp Ministries. If you click on that, uh, which is polycarpministries.com, you'll find out a lot of the things that Andy's involved with, where he's speaking. And uh, if you want to get in touch with Andy, um, you can do that through his website. He resides with his wife and four children in Collierville, Tennessee. I asked Andy to choose a a passage for the program, and he chose a a pretty big section, if not all, of chapter 6 of Romans. We won't be able to read all of that this moment, but we're going to focus in on Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Before I read that, I just was thinking I want to remind a couple of you that have contacted me recently about listening to the program. I want to thank you for that, and I want to extend a greeting to some uh, friends that I uh, met with recently in England, when I was there, who've actually downloaded the program and listened to it on their long drive into London, and I want to thank you guys for uh, for listening to the program and your kind comments. Now, Andy has chosen Romans six. I'm going to read Romans six, verse one through um, eight, I think, and that will. He might. We may talk about the entire chapter six. But the focus will be on verse 6, which I'll read in just a moment. And this is Paul writing to the Christians who are in Rome. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And now verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program
1: with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have
0: journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern time.
2: If you enjoy the Journey Home television program on EWTN, you'll want to purchase a copy of Marcus Gerdei's book, Journey's Home. Journey's Home contains the conversion stories of men and women who, as a result of their surrender to Jesus Christ, heard a call to follow Him more completely in the Catholic Church. Many of them were Protestant pastors or missionaries. Others were laymen who, though working in secular jobs, took their calling to serve Christ in the world very seriously. To order your copy of Marcus Grody's book, Journeys Home, simply visit our website at www.chresources.com or call us toll-free at 1-800-664-5110.
0: Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host, and today I'm joined by Andy McNutt. Hello, Andy. Hello. Thanks for joining us on the program. I, I appreciate uh, your witness. And I was thinking about asking you as we begin, in fact, I remembered back when you joined me on the journey home uh, that, you know, you were hoping that the, door, the Lord would open more doors for you to be able to to serve him as an evangelist in the church. And, and part of that was your Polycarp Ministries. Maybe even before we begin, tell the audience a little bit about how the Lord has opened doors for you since you've... You've come home to the church.
1: Well, uh, actually, you know, I mentioned this on your on your television program, but it was the Coming Home Network's website that helped me find a job after uh, I had to step down from my church position. And
0: uh, <laughs> well, praise God. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, yeah, and I was able to from there join the Helpers Network to uh, to be able to assist other men and women as they uh, are trying to find. Mm-hmm. Answers about the Catholic Church and about uh, about deepening their own faith with Christ. And uh, you notice from from my website, Polycarp Ministries, that uh, God has blessed me with the ability to go and and speak to to different groups, different congregations, uh, youth, mm-hmm. and, and retreats. And it's it's really amazing just to see all the opportunities that God is opening up. And, and even now, the possibility of of uh, going back into teaching full
0: time. Mm-hmm. So. Well, that's excellent. It's excellent. And I have one of our goals here in our work in the Coming Home Network, besides helping men and women discover the beauty of the Catholic faith and then come home, and then often that involves making that difficult transition from ministry responsibilities and support for their families into the church, you know, how you can use your gifts. I mean, that's that becomes then one of the main goals that we do is is to help those who've come home to the church find ways to continue using their gifts. And it's glad to see at least you've been able to scratch the surface. You're still hoping that more doors open, and uh, possibly getting, uh, you know, some more de- theological degrees so that you have those, you know, that parchment to put on a wall to help you open more doors. I mean, Andy, I right. you know what that's right. all about, and, and so does I'm sure some of our audience because they've they've fought the same battles. Right. But I love it when I think about yourself as a former Southern Baptist now Catholic looking at a passage like Romans 6. I love it because I know, especially when you come at Scripture from a sola scriptura perspective, that if you look at a passage like the chapter of 6 of Romans, which centers so much around sin, um, being changed in Christ, what has really changed, to what extent can we avoid sin, all those issues come into into our mind. We look at chapter 6. Uh, to what extent is the old really gone and the new come? All those issues that, from your background and my background, I was a Calvinist Presbyterian. You were a Southern Baptist. You know, we looked at Romans six a bit differently, right? Even not just from Catholics, but from other Protestants. Mm-hmm. And maybe before we jump into the passage uh, with both feet, uh, you know, of all the scriptures, why'd you choose this one, Andy, for our discussion?
1: Well. You know, in Romans chapter 6, Now, in my in my, my former life, I, I guess I'll say, there were two verses that I looked at in particular uh, in this passage. And the, the first one, the most familiar one, I guess to most people, would be Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our right, Lord. Right, right. part of the Romans' road. Mm-hmm, right. So, uh, you know, a, a, as, uh, as an evangelist, that's one of the verses that I would really key on because we know that sin separates us from God, that here God is offering us eternal life through Christ Jesus. So that's a very familiar verse. But the first verse of chapter 6 uh, talks about, you know, should, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And that, that verse, do by no means. Yep. And I, I, it sticks out in my mind from back in elementary Greek class, <laughs> learning that, that, uh, that double negative there, you know, who uh, may plus the infinitive means not ever you know the, the, and I, that sticks to my mind so those were two i guess the bookends mm-hmm. to me studying this chapter but the real the real thing that was getting me uh, that really dove me into chapter 6 was about our baptism and the significance of baptism uh, my senior paper when in my undergraduate was writing um, actually a defense or uh, an argument against baptismal regeneration that that baptism regenerates that that's how the holy spirit Justifies the believer, and I, I took the, the the against position, and I was looking at Romans six and looking at how you know early Christians understood this this passage, how they understood Saint Paul, mm-hmm. and how they understood baptism. And I you know uh, I had debates even with other with other Protestants on how we understood this passage, and what was uh, what 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 did baptism do? Was it merely a symbol, or or did it actually do something? And so it was studying this passage that, that really it, it was part of the road to uh, to my understanding of grace and the sacrament.
0: Yeah, because this, uh, if we look at um, verse two, second part of it, uh, it seems to me that it, it kind of addresses something that's assumed. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Exactly. This, I mean, let's begin with the discussion, and this would get you into maybe parts of all of chapter six. This issue of being of died to sin, right. we have it, it assumes something there, right? Mm-hmm. And um, how maybe from a Baptist and then a Catholic perspective, what what happens here? How do we die to sin, and to what extent have we died to sin?
1: Well, now we, we I don't know how you did baptisms, but when I would do baptisms, when 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 uh, when we do baptisms, we we take them under. We would say bear with Christ in baptism. And we pull them up out of the water and we say, raised to walk in newness of life. Hmm. And we understood that as a symbol of our union with Christ and his death. And our hope of resurrection and new life in Jesus Christ. And, and when I would read further in this, in this passage, I see that reference again to baptism. Because verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Which I summarized in that in in that act of baptism. But what does that mean? Because you you pointed it out. Mm-hmm. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And that's why the, the verses that you read at the beginning of the program. Something happened in that baptism. It yeah. wasn't just a, a picture. It was a picture that did something.
0: That um, reminds me of a, of a verse, and I'd love to bring this <clears throat> into discussion for a second here. Let me find it here, Second Timothy chapter 3, and I'd love you to just address this because the issue of baptism, all right, and you as a Southern Baptist recog- saw baptism as nothing more, right, than a symbolic, uh, a symbol of the faith that the person has. Now, did you as a Baptist recognize that faith was a gift of grace? Yes. It wasn't something that somebody just kind of created within themselves, but it was something they'd received that's work of the Spirit anyway, right? right? Right, absolutely. And then so the baptism was the public symbol, message to the public, that you had surrendered to Jesus Christ. As a Presbyterian Calvinist, I looked at it a little differently. I didn't believe that a person was actually changed by it, but yet there was something spiritually real happening in baptism a bit of a mystery um, and we baptize children uh, and it was all to us a symbol that it was totally by grace anyway. Right. Um, but this verse in Second Timothy is I think interesting and I'd love your reflection on it. 2 Timothy 3 and when it says, um, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of stress for men will be lovers of self. And then Paul gives a long list of of things that are symbols of the end times, but one of them is verse 5, holding the form of religion, but denying the power of it. And what's your thought, Andy? When I looked at that verse on my journey, I thought about sacraments, that we as Protestants, part of the Protestant movement, was denying the power of the sacraments. And that they made any difference at all, and was that part of your own discovery in your journey to the faith, to the well, church?
1: Absolutely, because for me, now I'm speaking personally. Uh, for me, everything was academic. It was all, and and I was I was a reformed Southern Baptist. So, you know, even though we had different understandings of, of baptism, we we definitely saw we were looking at grace. I think through this through a similar lens, but I I, I definitely denied. The sacraments. I denied the efficacy of anything Mm -hmm. outside of you know my my submission to the to the will of God, and it was it really everything was in my mind that you know faith was not my actions were not even necessary. So why would this baptism be necessary? And my argument for for the need for baptism would be the same need uh, that I would say for a wedding ring. You don't you don't have to wear a wedding ring to be married, but you you want to wear that, mm-hmm. and that that's kind of the push that I I gave for baptism. But if you if you have committed your life to Jesus Christ and you're saved, then why not take this step, this pub, make this public declaration? But that's all that I saw it as
0: initially, anyway. Yeah, if I look back, I'm trying to remember myself uh, how I took this passage, verse three. I suppose you could interpret it uh, with the Baptist slant, right? It, which it says, "Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death?" In other words, you could say well, that baptism was really pointing to the faith that uh, that accomplished this. You could you could possibly go there, which to me it points out the flaw of solo scriptura, because you can read into anything and make it say what you want to read. Right, but
1: yeah, people agree with you.
0: Yeah, well, there you go. If you're in your closed community and you all can kind of pat each other on the back and, and then not challenge it. But the, the one that's harder is verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Mm-hmm. You know, it literally is saying that.
1: Right, baptism was the means.
0: Yeah. So that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we who walk might walk in newness of life. If you start taking the first part of that part of that passage and write it away as symbolic, you start having to do with that with the rest of the passage, which almost says that Christ's death was a symbolic thing, of something that God did anyway that wasn't directly connected to what Christ did on the cross. Um, the the other passage right after that, um, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him, in a resurrection like his. Of course, that points out the, uh, the certainty, at least, of resurrection. Were you, as a Baptist, a once-saved-always-saved?
1: I was. I definitely was. And, and I guess that, that's why these verses are so significant to me, because what I ran into as a preacher, you know, I, I, would, I was the, the Hellfire Brimstone guy, because my, my greatest desire was to know that men and women were looking to Christ for their salvation, that they weren't sitting on their laurels. And so I preached on sin a lot. Mm-hmm. But what I got back was was no response. And my thought process began, well, why are these people not responding? Why is it that, that there are so many so many sins that seem to be acceptable? That people don't seem to have a a, a desire to can to con, continually convert to Christ, to let go of sin and live as the freed people that that we are, even as uh, as I used to understand Romans six, and and so I, I I began to think, well, it's it's well, it's like that verse you read in Second Timothy. Mm-hmm. It's we we we've robbed of a robbed of his power, so it, it almost became that my preaching was my preaching was really just kind of uh, I was nagging. <laughs> I was nagging them, and if they didn't want to listen to it, because they can say, you know, Andy. You know, I like your sermon, and, you, and, 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 and we like having you here, but all you're really doing is, is you're, bothering, you're bothering me because I'm saved. And yeah. Nothing I do from here on out makes any difference whatsoever in, in my, with regard to my salvation. And they may not say that in so many words. I did have some people that would tell me that. But you, it's by your actions. If people are not pursuing Christ... We could easily write them off and say, well they, they weren't really Christians in the first place. but I believe they thought they were Christians and think they are Christians.
0: You know Andy, I, I was thinking it, in my own transition I, w- I wonder if you went through this same process because um, just like you said, there are those who believe in the once saved always saved, and they'll have to look at passages in like lots of verses in John in Romans 6. And put a spin on them to make it fit. All right. But those that recognized the need to uh, clean their lives up from sin, uh, it worked well as long as it was the most easily visible, clear cut sins. Let's, okay. Number one, I'm not murdering. Good. Okay. I can check that off my list. You know, I haven't stole. Okay. Check that off my list. But Andy, In my journey to become a Catholic as I discovered Catholic spiritual writers like Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, I started discovering as they were teaching that the the most damaging sins in our lives are the, the ones that are most deeply rooted in our inner being. Not necessarily the ones that are on the outside. We clean up those easy and we can look great on the outside and there are some once saved, always saved Bible preachers that their lives look really great on the outside. But on the inside, which we don't see what Jesus sees, there can be a lot of junk. And I knew that to be true of me. I mean, did you go through that same transition recognizing that even our understanding of sin changed in the process of our journey?
1: Absolutely. And I can remember taking a a class in seminary where we were looking at different, we call them models of sanctification, but looking at how different Christian groups understood this how are we made holy? You know, uh, at at my uh, when I prayed to receive Christ in my heart, as I understood it then, was I made as holy as I'm ever going to be, or is there is there a, more of a process to it? And if so, how does that work? And because I looked at my I looked at my own life, and this is the reason why I had to step down from my Protestant ministry it wasn't to become Catholic. I still had research to do. <laughs> it's because I knew. That the life that, that I was clean on the outside, and everybody that saw me in the pulpit, and everybody that saw me in the classes, saw me as a guy who had it all together. But inside, my heart and my my soul was wrecked. Mm-hmm. It just struggles struggles with sin, with temptations, with 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 thoughts, and and, uh, it, it, and it manifested itself in the way that I treated my family, in the way in my own personal life, my private life, and. That that's hypocrisy uh, in, the, in the clear sense. I was pretending to be something I was not, and that's why I had to step down. And, and you know, I would read passages like, like Romans 6. I said, wait, this, this says that I'm dead to sin. Well, if I'm dead to sin, why am I still sinning? <laughs> you read on to Romans 7 and you see that Paul made some of the same, asked some of the same questions. You know, and, and one of the ways that I know people understand Romans 7 is, well, Paul's kind of doing a flashback to his Prior to his conversion, and I don't believe that's the case.
0: No, there's nothing in that at all that says that he's doing a flashback.
1: No, no, it, 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 we, uh, it, it's sticking out to me right now. I'm looking at that verse, Romans six twenty three, because we always use that. Right. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is that there in the at the end of that verse? He's not making an appeal to the Romans to pray the sinner's prayer and be saved. Because he's writing to Christians. <laughs> what <laughs> right. he's telling them is, look, you've been changed. There there has been a change of your being because of what Christ has done to you in baptism. And because of that, because you are united to Christ and Christ is sinless, then you now are sinless and need to live that way. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. And so it, if that means that, you know, there are a lot, well, there means a lot of things. But it means that I'm not supposed to be sinning, and it says that I think it's verse seven that that sin, uh, he who has died, is freed from sin. You know that word there that he's 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 been set free. That uh, sin's been made impotent in our life. It doesn't have that power unless we give it to him. I think Romans even says elsewhere it's like an old lover calling, calling us back. You know we we commit adultery with God when we go back to our old life of sin because. We, we have been changed, but I did not see that in my life, and I was trying to figure out how to get myself in the, in the best path to, to be able to receive this change that St. Paul says is happening in the believer, In what St. What John says also in his letters, you know, that the, if we're in Christ, we don't sin. Yeah, well, that... I'm sinning, so does that mean I'm not in Christ?
0: Yeah, there's an amazing statement. In fact, we need to take a break. When we come back wanna pick up on that because there is a verse in First John which would be good to bring up where he says that I'm the reason I'm writing this is that you may not sin. And you know, how did you deal with that when you were a Baptist? Um, because um uh, uh, I think it is so crucial for us to see that there's a big distinction between how we understood things as a Protestant and as a Catholic in this area, which in the end uh, becomes a, a shaky ground to continue to follow Christ if we do not believe that by number one, by grace we can be different, and number two, by grace we are called to be different, right. and that is essential to our being able to stand without embarrassment before God. But let's look at that when we get back from the other side of the break. This is Deep in Scripture, your host, Marcus Grodi. I'm joined today by Andy McNutt. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. EWTN.com is online with program information, the latest news, Pope Benedict XVI, plus tools for living the faith like prayers, Catholic Q&A, and other resources. Log on today to EWTN.com.
2: Written by Carl Adam, Roots of the Reformation gives a historically sensitive and accurate analysis of the cases of the Reformation that stands as a valid and sometimes unsettling challenge to the presuppositions of Protestants and Catholics alike. This valuable resource is a powerful summary of the issues that led to the Reformation and their implications today. To order a copy of this book for yourself or a friend, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org or call us at one 800
0: Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host Marcus Grody. I'm joined today by Andy McNutt and we're looking we're looking at Romans chapter 6 we're kind of focusing on the issue of sin and Andy, what I'd like to do is to throw something out on Table for you to talk about, uh, which deals just what we're talking about this this issue of sin and can we sin? Can we not sin? I remember that was a debating issue when I was in seminary. But what strikes me interesting, you referred to John's letters. Let me just quote a few, and set them out there, and then for you to talk about with the audience. Um, In Roman, excuse me, in John chapter 15, the very familiar section where Jesus is teaching about the vine and the branches but he talks about the necessity of abiding in him verse 4 abide in me and I in you um, and he, he says um, uh, you know every branch that does not bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit it talks about if you're not abiding you're cast if a man does not abide in me he is cast forth as a branch and withers and the branches are gathered so this issue of the necessity of abiding the importance of abiding in Christ well then in John chapter 3 1 John chapter 3, he says, no one who abides in me, excuse me, no one who abides in him, it's John talking about Jesus, no one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who does right is righteous as he is righteous. He who commits sin is of the devil. Now, first of all, Andy, what did you do with those verses back when you were a Southern Baptist?
1: Well, you know, I'm looking. I've got my old preaching Bible right here in front of me. and <laughs> I've got highlighter bleeding all over 1 John. Yep. And, and what, it, what it is, is, you know, I, I kept looking at, at verse 6, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Right. And that's about as far as I took it, because I still couldn't reconcile, you know, why? It's you, you know you, and even today, you know you talk to somebody as a Catholic, you talk to somebody who maybe they're not Catholic, and talk about daily Mass. You know, I, you know, I have I feel a need to get to go to daily Mass. Well, why? well you don't have to go
0: to daily Mass, do you?
1: Yeah, and there's there's kind of there's, I hear that a lot. You don't have to pray Rosary, do you? You don't have to to do these these works of mercy. Well, you know, there's a sense we can say, well, no, you don't have to. Do stuff. We we know the precepts of the church and and what what is what is required. But is that not something that we ought to want to do? And and that's what I, I was. How do I get somebody to want to live holy? How do I get myself to, to live holy? Because that and you read it in John. Mm-hmm. Abide in him. How do you do that? Because I used to think it was well. It's through right thinking. My right thinking is is going to transform. Uh, transform itself into right living in my life. If I can think right and understand rightly the scriptures, then that's going to transform the way that I live. And there's truth in that. But I need to be living rightly. I need to be abiding in him, and I need to know what that means. And I think the answer, I, I, I believe now the answer to that question lies in the incarnation.
0: Yeah, and I know I've mentioned this on program before, but one of the verses I never saw, Andy, on my own journey was that the only scripture where Jesus tells us specifically how to abide in him is John chapter 6 mm-hmm. where it says through the eating of his body and drinking his blood we abide in him and he in us. I mean that's the only place he tells us how to abide in him is through that intimate union we experience with him in the Eucharist, in the sacraments. Right. And so once again we have the power. Right. The power of grace mm-hmm. uh, to that, make that
1: that is that, in, that communion that's that yeah, that is our we never you're never going to be as close to Jesus Christ uh, this side of heaven as you are when you're in the Eucharist because that is Jesus Christ physically spiritually and every which way that is that is Jesus and and that's it was it's the sacraments the sacraments do something to us
0: yeah and I think Andy was this true for you too I think as I looked back on my own journey that what I didn't recognize in scripture is that often things like the power of the sacraments, power of baptism, the reality of the Eucharist, which were are clearly expressed in the writings of the early fathers, but are often taken for granted in the New Testament because they're a part of the tradition. Of, these local churches know this through their being taught, but if it wasn't a problem, then Paul didn't mention it in, in the letters. And let me read you another verse Andy, to continue in that first John passage, no one born of God commits sin. For God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. This idea of being born of God. Now you're a Southern Baptist. I imagine you took John three to a month of born again right. to not be connected to baptism.
1: Mm-hmm. Not not in a sacramental way because we don't have we didn't have sacraments.
0: Right, you and took so, born again as the, as the result of your faith in Jesus.
1: Right, right, and and even practically, you know, as, the, as that making that act of faith, that uh, praying to receive Christ as my Lord, and, and doing that one time, and and that was, uh, you know, the, I would the more that I read, especially talking to, when I'm in seminary, talking to people from, even from other denominations that were talking about these verses, we all understand them differently. And the Calvinists yep. are in their one camp, and, and, and the semi-Pelagians are in their one camp, and we're all sitting around the lunch table, and we're discussing these things, and, and who's right? It, it, and that frustrated me, because I'm right. I'm always supposed to be right. They're not. No one else is <laughs> at the table. If they disagree with me, they can't be right. But how, how do I prove that? Yeah. In, in what I, what I was, what I'm learning what was learning in hermeneutics classes is, you have to go back to the author. How did the author intend, and how would his how would his original audience have understood that? And the only way you're going to know that is to read the rest of the body of this this author's literature, to read the context, to read the other writings from other people, his contemporaries, and and that's where we run into the church fathers. Yep. You know, how did these early bishops, these and these early priests and leaders of the church, how how were they using these writings of the apostles? And you read uh, St. Irenaeus and you read uh, St. Polycarp and you, and you read St. Clement, and you see that they all had a very profound understanding that something was going on in these sacraments. It wasn't just a, a ritual, it wasn't just a common meal. There was something significant going on. And people that left the church left because they did not believe that. I remember in uh, St. Paul, Archer, that, that was, when he was writing to the Ephesians, he said, you know, they, they left us because they don't believe that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Which St. Paul alludes to, was it 1 mm-hmm. Corinthians? Mm-hmm. He alludes to that. But everybody understood it. We, he did, there didn't need to be a long treatise on the Eucharist, because we have the treatise on the Eucharist from the words of Jesus himself in John 6. And the Church understood that.
0: Yeah, and for me, the again in the journey, I'm sure it was for you that Second Thessalonians passage that emphasizes the need to hold, stand firm to the traditions mm-hmm. that were received, um, not only by you know, writing the letters, but as he says, either by word of mouth or by letter. To me, always emphasized the. Uh, the reality that the primary means by which the the bulk of the faith was delivered to the christians throughout the mediterranean the primary means in those early years was orally right and so the idea of necessity of baptism was something that was foundational to everything they had learned. And so the interpretation of Scripture, as I came to see it, Andy, was not merely as you and I had been taught in exegesis, which was, you know, what was Paul's intent in the letter of Romans? Mm -hmm. But what I've learned is that what was Paul's intent in the letter of Romans as it fits into the complete picture of tradition? exactly The whole picture. Mm -hmm. We don't just, as we did in seminary, you know, you as a Southern Baptist and, and maybe a Methodist, and me as a Calvinist Presbyterian, sitting down and arguing, what's the meaning of baptism? We'd have our favorite verses, but one thing we never did is what is the huge, big picture of the tradition that was delivered by the apostles?
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. It yeah. was easy for it, it was easy to dismiss that as uh, in, in, at least it was easy for me to dismiss all those writings. Um, otherwise, I, my my paper on baptism would have been totally different, yeah. <laughs> because the, the testimony that I had from the early church was, baptism does something, and and it it has an effect, and, and I wasn't seeing anything about sola scriptura, and, and yeah, I, I, it was easy for me to dismiss that, because I was looking purely academically, and, and starting with St. Paul, and starting with the immediate context of this passage, and going out, but even though the, the early church fathers were there and I was reading them, I didn't see that they had a lot of weight. They didn't have a lot of weight to me. Yeah Yeah. Uh, but you, you pointed out the verse there in Second Timothy, and I don't know if you got your Greek New Testament out or not, but I don't with that, it here, but that word uh, tradition, yep. the tradition. it's not this is how we did things last week, or this is how we've always done it. It's handing on. Mm-hmm. It's passing on. And, and these are the things that have been passed on. It was passed off from Christ to his apostles, and he breathed the, and gave them the Holy Spirit, and, and said they would have perfect recall of everything he taught them. And they were entrusting that to the priests and the bishops and the deacons,
2: and they were handing
1: it on and they were handing it on. It's not novelty. Uh, you know, Saint Polycarp wasn't sitting down with his Greek New Testament and working out an exegesis of Saint Paul's writings or of Saint John's writings. He said, "Well, listen, when Saint John taught me this." This is what he intended, because he knew. So the the, the tradition, the, the apostolic uh, tradition, is this handing on of the faith, a faithful transmission of the gospel, uh, of, of the message of Christ, and the scriptures are part of that tradition. I just, I didn't understand that then; I understand it now. Mm-hmm. But it's beautiful how God has preserved the faith through this handing on, and it's not it's not unlike what He was doing in the Old Testament. The passing on. You know, when did we start? Get when did Moses actually start writing down uh, the Pentateuch? And he wasn't that creation. So how was this given to him? It was the tradition. It was what was handed on, the faithful transmission of of, of God's truth.
0: That verse nine in First John three, um, a little afield here from the Romans six passage. But I, it just to me it makes sense in the context of with the understanding in Romans 6 of the importance of baptismal regeneration, enabling us by grace to be different people. First of all, we are different, but he says in Romans 9, no one born of God commits sin. Mm -hmm. And I remember trying to figure out how do I interpret that with my people as a Presbyterian Calvinist because, you know, my view of of, uh, total depravity was that we could not not sin. But he's saying here, no, by the grace of the new life we have in baptism, we are able to be new creatures, we are able to stand before God, and by that grace, we are able to resist and grow in holiness. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, that's what he goes on to say, right? I mean, he, right. for God's nature abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. You know, that we, we can become different. doesn't mean we, we can ever imagine being perfect like Jesus this side of heaven because we do have concupiscence with that remainder of it. Did, well, What did you deal with? You didn't use the word concupiscence as a, as a Baptist. <laughs> but uh, you know, what about sin? Were there layers of sin for you, different levels?
1: Well, no, I went to sin altogether. But what, it's, it's, it's like it's the way I had, to, I, had to, I had to change, I had to redefine it. I had to redefine justification. I had to redefine righteousness. I had to redefine holiness and it became that that you know yeah i'm this i'm still this horrible wretched guy because i find myself doing these things that i know are not pleasing to god oh but that's okay because we've you know we're totally depraved and and that's just the way that we are and god god's righteous covers us up it's like we're wearing jesus's clothes and so when god looks at us he sees he sees jesus's righteousness but really inside mm-hmm. we're not righteous and that's not faithful. That's not even faithful to God, because that's as if God doesn't know any better. He knows that we're, He knows that we are uh, sinful and that we need change. And so He changes us, and He says, "Your sins are forgiven. Your sins I don't remember anymore." And if God doesn't remember something, that means that the sin doesn't exist. So it's not just a covering.
0: Yeah. In fact, um, the parable of Jesus. When, uh, you know, the parable of the wedding feast, uh, the ones that were intended to come didn't want to come. So he invited others. Well, that's the whole salvation history of the Jews not wanting to follow. But then there's the rest of us, the Gentiles, who have been engrafted in. But once they came, if they came dirty, they were cast out. Right. You know, we are called to be holy. And, you know... <laughs> uh, You know, John, back in the, uh, what's scary, uh, Andy, what's what's scary is when you look back at the Sermon on the Mount, and it says in the Sermon on the Mount, he warned that anyone that relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Right. Uh, You probably weren't guilty of that, right, Andy? I mean, in other words, putting your own spin on Scripture, making it less critical, less demanding than it just says in the clearness so that it was more palatable to why people. You were never guilty of that, right?
1: Well, I I would never accuse myself of that. But but in, in practicality, was I? You know, was I pulling punches when... When it was clear to me and, and I was convicted in, in reading the scriptures, was I less than faithful in putting that out there? Because I had people in my ear all the time saying, hey, you need to quit preaching doubt from the pulpit. You're going to convince people that they're not saved. And, and I, my response always was, well, brother, I, I would rather them get right with God and, and have a doubt and, and get right with God than them sit on their, on their tail end and, and not know Christ and not be faithful to him. But I, I think the temptation was there for me to, to, to especially yeah. in my own life, to find ways to justify. We, the mind is powerful. We can find ways to justify our own actions. And we, even with the sacred scriptures, we can uh, even subconsciously read into that something that's not there or take something out of it, something that, that's not meant to be taken out.
0: Yeah, and there are some that would say that that was actually at the core of Luther's... Uh, a revolution in that he himself struggled with sin, he had a hard time with the confessional, he went over and over, could never find peace and so in essence he redefined justification in yes. such a way that he didn't have to deal with the guilt any longer, I mean that's one way of, of caricaturing that. We need to take a break Andy, when we come back I think to, to kind of wrap this up I'd like to look at um, verse 17 and 18 of Romans 6. In other words, we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves of righteousness. What does that mean as we try and walk more faithfully? What does it mean that we are slaves of righteousness? You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host. I'm joined by Andy McNutt. And you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network.
2: Please visit our website www.chnetwork.org or contact us at 1-800-664-5110.
1: The Coming Home Network International and Marcus Grodi invite you to join us for our eighth annual Deep in History conference coming this fall to Columbus, Ohio. This year, our focus will be on the authenticity of the sacred scriptures as we ask, how firm is your foundation? Join us the weekend of October 22nd as we bring together another exciting list of guest speakers. For more information, go to deepinhistory.com or call us at 800-664-5110.
0: Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grody, joined today by Andy McNutt. I just want to remind you that next week on the Journey Home open line program, my guest will be returning guest, Michael Cumby, And you'll want to listen to that show. He's always a lot of fun. And that's the Journey Home Monday night at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time on EWTN television and radio. Andy, uh... There's a lot of verses we could we could conclude with but I this one just you know verse seventeen but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness talk a bit about that even for for those that are listening struggling with sin still mm. you know this,
1: this is the beauty of the church this is this is what Christ knows that concupiscence still exists, even though our sins are washed away in baptism. He knows that we still struggle because we still have that tendency towards sin. And so he says, well, look, I've got a solution for that. You need to abide in me. You need to stay with me. It's like uh, parents always tell their kids, don't run with the bad crowd. You run with the good kids. And when and you run with the good kids, you're going to be good. When we involve ourselves in the life of the church in the community, the Christian community, it's a lot harder to sin. And when we, when we realize for ourselves, and remember, like St. Peter says, remember who we are and what God has done to us, we say, we're not slaves to sin anymore. Those old habits, even though Satan roars and screams and tries to, to remind us of all the things we've ever done, he's powerless to make us sin. And we have the grace and the sacraments to not only restore us to God, but to also give us the uh, the power, the resurrection mm-hmm. life of Jesus Himself, the power that raised him from the dead, that same power in our lives to live holy lives, to become canonized saints. Mm-hmm. So he, he's given us this and he even he says in verse nineteen, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. Mm-hmm. For just as you once yielded your members to impurity and to greater, greater iniquity. Now yield your members to righteousness for sanctification. And he goes on before he gets to to verse 23. What return were you getting for all that sin you did? I'm summarizing. (laughs) And and, and I I realized this myself in my own struggle with sin, how powerful the sacraments are. Because when I I was struggling with, with multiple sins, habitual sins in my former life and even coming into the church just wrestling with these things and never ever having any progress to come and to start receiving the Eucharist and to come and start coming into the Sacrament of Reconciliation, to begin to see real, actual change in my life, noticeable change in my life. And I certainly haven't arrived. I still have to wrestle with a lot of things. But I can see the change. I also see the change when I sin and I slip back. But thanks be to God that he has given us a means to be restored and reconciled to him, to be restored not just to me and Jesus, but to be restored to my family, to restore to my church community. That's the
0: the sacraments. Yeah, and I would, just to to put another uh, spin on verse 17 and 18, not a spin, but just to see it, if, if you look at it through the eyes of Catholic spiritual writers who've written for centuries on the reality that... It's not like the day we accept Jesus, we're, we're changed and, and we've arrived. No, like St. Paul, who recognizes I haven't yet been made perfect. I'm still in a process. Yeah. That 17, those of you that wanted to pick more time after the program, recognize that he may not be implying in verse 17 and 18 that this applies to every single Christian, but that within the Christian family, there are those that by grace are growing continually growing deeper. You know, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of living to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You know, I don't know that I'm a slave of righteousness yet. By grace, I am hope that I'm totally committed all the time. But where I'm growing is becoming obedient from the heart. That's a deeper commitment, not just on the surface. It's deeper and to me, that connects with the the, old, the bigger picture of what Paul talks about, this journey becoming full in grace in the process of our growing. I didn't talk much about that when I was a Calvinist. I don't know if you did, Andy.
1: No, no, I didn't. And uh, you, you pointed it out there that we those two, ver- the, the verse there, obedient from the heart, we're linking our, our emotions, our intellect to our actions. Yes. Our faith in our life. Are united. You can't separate the two. You can't separate our faith from our works. They're the same. And so we, we we it's all it's all part of relating to Jesus Christ, to abiding in Him, to being part of His life, and that's that's going to change who we are. It's going to make us righteous. We're going to grow in our righteousness.
0: You know, and it, it reminds us, Andy, of why every time we walk into the church, the first thing we do. Is is to dip our fingers in the the, sac, the the holy water so that we ask God's blessing and are reminded of the graces that we receive back in our baptism. That's where renewal begins is we've got those baptismal graces whether we're practicing them or not, right? They're there. Right. Andy, thanks a lot for joining us. Glad to be here. I appreciate it. Again, everyone, Polycarp Ministries, you can link to it on the deepinscripture.com website to find out more about what Andy's doing and, and uh, you can pray for him as he continues to seek to look for doors to use his gifts. Thank you all for joining us. I hope it's been an encouragement to you. It's always a pleasure to join you. God bless you. Look forward to being with you next week on Deep in Scripture.